Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your weekly wildfire update. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Today, we're going to start off with the operational update, what's going on around the United States with wildfires. It has started to pick up a little bit. We are still nationally at a preparedness level two, but I wouldn't be surprised if that changed anytime soon here. Maybe they'll give us a little surprise rolling into Friday and Saturday and switch that up, but we'll have to keep an eye on that. We're also going to talk about Idaho announcing just this week that 50% of their wildland firefighting force are first-year firefighters, 50%, half. And the folks that were interviewed discuss why they think that is happening and who's leaving ultimately, and why they can't find new people. It's an interesting article out of Boise. We'll take a look at that. And then on Wednesday's show, which was on Substack only, I highly suggest folks check that out. It's the hotshotwakeup.substack.com. We discussed a documentary that I had watched called Burn, where it covers the station where that structure firefighters are assigned and issued. And a bunch of people got together over the last couple of years and did a bunch of testing and lab work on that material to find out that there was a bunch of benzene, fluorides, and things called PFAS inside that material. And I was asking the question, I wonder if anybody has tested Nomex. After that podcast, someone reached out to me and said, yes, Nomex have been tested, and they are showing some of the same characteristics chemically that these other fatigues and station wear showed. And there was kind of a write-up that someone did a little while ago on the results of that and what they found in their Nomex. So we'll cover that as well. Very, very interesting stuff. The sad part, or I guess the frustrating part, is a lot of these PFAS materials, benzene, these things that are fire retardants, were banned in things like food and carpeting, yoga mats, furniture, things like that in the United States back in 2014. They've been banned in Europe for a very long time, but they're still showing up in firefighters' uniforms, specifically the pants and the shirts that they wear when they go fight a fire. So that is something we will talk about later on in the show as well. But first, we'll do an operational update. Like I said, nationally, it's still a preparedness level two. There were 166 new fires in the last 24 hours, three new large incidents, And there are 11 uncontained large fires currently. The National Interagency Fire Center put out kind of a blurb this morning talking about what this year looks like compared to others. As of right now, it's a very, very slow year, definitely under the 10-year average for acres burned. And it probably even goes further back than that once you start looking at the graphs and the charts and you put all these acreage and number of fires together. We've been talking for a couple months now how this was gearing up to be one of the slower years in recent memory. Their breakdown says three new large fires reported yesterday. Nationally, 18 large fires have burned 125,000 acres in six states. Since January, 25,163 wildfires have burned 702,000 acres. These numbers are below the 10-year average, which is 2.33 million acres burned as of today. So on an average year, there are over two and a half times what we are currently at for acreage. And this is a drastic change from 
all of the media last year and the year before claiming how it's going to be fire Armageddon for years to come and it's only going to get worse. Again, this is one of the slowest years in a very, very long time. We've also been discussing about how Canada has been turned into an international sand table when it comes to ordering, dispatch, and logistical setups for international firefighting conglomerates. Nipsey says, since May 8th, the United States has mobilized a total of 1,473 personnel to Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, and other places. Crews alone represent 1,129 of those people. 91 individuals were overhead and 92 smoke jumpers, 8 spotters, and 12 incident management teams, including 153 people, have gone. Recently, South Korea just sent a bunch of firefighters up to Canada, and this continues to be a learning experience for the international community when it comes to an international wildland firefighting force being dispatched to a sovereign nation to help them combat wildfires. Again, this was the topic of this year's Springtime International Association of Wildland Firefighters, where they discussed with international partners on how they could better order, dispatch, and logistically support a global firefighting force. And of course, if you're a longtime listener, this is the goal of the UN wildfire report that came out in the spring of 2021. So it just so happens that Canada is the country that is being used to test all of these procedures and policies and getting people into the country and getting them to where they need to be across a large span of acreage in a community and a country that speaks multiple languages with different terrain, different tactics, different fuel types, and others. And while that's going on, the United States has seen a significant reduction in wildfire across the nation. It just so happens that there's been a 1,500% increase in Western states in cloud seeding in the last year and a half. All of the reservoirs that were at 50-year lows are now filled to the brink, and they're dumping fresh water into the ocean because they can't hold them anymore. And it's all very interesting when you just look at it, and then you can ponder over a cup of coffee on your porch on R&R and think, I wonder if any of those things are correlated. Back to the operational update, there are no Type 1 IMTs committed. That's amazing for going on the second week of July. That's actually pretty impressive. And there is one Type 2 team committed currently. In the Rocky Mountain area, they're at a preparedness level 2. There's a couple fires out in Colorado. There's the Spring Creek Fire at 3,200 acres. The Chris Mountain Fire at 511 acres. And then a couple smaller ones. There's the Arkansas Loop and the Coal Mine Fire. And just those four fires have a combined cost of $17 million. The largest being the Spring Creek, which is in Garfield County, which has Rocky Mountain Team 2 on it outside of Parachute, Colorado. That's 37% contained, and they have 536 people on it. The Chris Mountain Fire, which they had some terrain issues. It was kind of on a rim. Coming up on a plateau, it was hard to get down into where this thing was burning. That's 511 acres, like we said, and they have 563 people on it. So 
more than one person per acre on that fire. The southwest area has moved to a PL3. A couple fires kind of popped up. Human-caused starts, dragging chains on the backs of trailers is what it sounds like some of these started from. The most prominent being the Flying V fire, which is on the Fort Apache Agency's jurisdiction, and that burned 1,200 acres. There was this Stockton Hill fire that ripped pretty quick, uh, and then they got a handle on that, 589 acres. The Pilot Fire isn't getting a lot of press, and it's not threatening anything or you know, causing problems for infrastructure or life or property. But they're still saying that this thing is active on all sides. It's in the Northwest District of Arizona, next to Wikiup, Arizona. And again, it's Thursday night when I'm recording this, and the last report was that it was active on all flanks. Why it's surprising we haven't heard much is it's almost 17,000 acres at this point in time. And in the last 24 hours, it's grown 8,200 acres. There's 10 people on it. Okay. I know there are no structures or infrastructure or things like that threatened, but it's kind of shocking to see a 17,000 acre fire-ish with only 10 people on it. Cheap, cheap, cheap too. $40,000 for a 17,000 acre fire. The Flying V fire, which is just a couple days old, already cost a million. Stockton Hill at 589 acres, $1.2 million. The Beehive fire, which is 10,745 acres, that's on the Coronado, down on the border. That's cost $4.7 million. I am hearing reports out of Arizona that there's this Beehive fire, then there's the Beehive 2 fire. Then there was another fire near those fires as well. It is sounding like there are illegal aliens crossing the border and these fires are being started by them. A couple to basically ask for help because they're lost in the desert of Arizona and they need to get out of there or they're going to die. And it does sound like they flew a couple of these individuals off the fire um, in like a medevac situation. I did hear one report that they did found a woman out there who seemed like she had been beaten and abused. And she was found near one of these starts. And they kind of packaged her up and flew her off that fire out of the desert. So a lot of human-caused starts down in Arizona just this last week. In the Northwest, there was this Tunnel 5 fire in Washington. 556 acres. For that size, it's an expensive fire, $4.5 million. It's outside of Underwood, Washington. And then there's this Alder Creek fire that's burning in Oregon. It ripped about 400 acres overnight on kind of a sage, pinion pine kind of slope of a mountain. And it calmed a little bit during the nighttime, but today they've had warm, hot weather and it's doubled in size, now 700 acres. They're bringing in a bunch of crews, hotshot crews, tons of aviation, tankers, and they're trying to slam this thing because it came back to life. It looked like they had a pretty good grasp on it, and it just kind of popped up a little bit. That's the operational update. When it comes to Canada, there are things still burning. Crews are still up there from the United States and all over the planet. Ontario is kind of having a little season now as well. Quebec is recovering from their large fire bust. Alberta is doing better than they were. 
And British Columbia has extreme fire weather through this weekend. If we were to watch anywhere in Canada, I would watch British Columbia because it looks like they are the most primed for new starts and large wildfire growth. That's the operational update. I predict it's going to be a busy weekend. We'll see what happens, but it is kind of gearing up for that, especially in the Pacific Northwest. Northern Idaho caught a lot of lightning fires these last couple days as well. Nothing that went big, but they are starting, and they are in very rugged, rugged ground, sucking up a lot of resources. Multiple hotshot crews on smaller incidents, but it's incredibly steep, crazy footing, And these are those smaller fires in these hard-to-reach areas that will start sucking up other resources that have been sitting specifically in Region 5. California sent a bunch of crews to Montana and Idaho. And we'll see what comes out of that. Again, I think this weekend we might see some significant activity across the United States. That's the operational update. Thanks to all the paid subscribers on Substack. I am 100% community-supported through my Substack. Everything that I do when it comes to fire updates, donations, giveaways, all of the articles that I put out. I put out an article yesterday on basically society. There was this story out of Lake Tahoe where a bunch of basically kids showed up for an Independence Day celebration and they left four tons of trash on the shores, on the beach, and they had to get volunteers to drag all that stuff out. That article was released 24 hours ago as of me recording this. It had 46,000 reads in 24 hours. I really appreciate people sharing it and reading my work. But again, I don't have any sponsors. I'm 100% community supported. If you would like to support what I do and you enjoy the content and want to help with giveaways and continue these articles and podcasts, just go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com and click on subscribe and that supports everything that I do. Up next, we're going to discuss what's going on in Idaho. The Idaho Department of Lands, this fire management division in the state of Idaho, did an interview with the Idaho Capital Sun out of Boise. This article was written by Clark Corbin, and it highlights what we have all seen over the last two, three years in the United States, also in Canada and other places where you're seeing a mass exodus of experienced high-level supervisors in the wildfire world. This article claims that 50% of their wildfire workforce are first-year firefighters. That's very, very, very significant and definitely worth highlighting. It says, due to the high turnover and competition with federal agencies, half of the state of Idaho's seasonal wildland firefighters are brand new which has resulted in fewer experienced firefighters filling leadership positions. The state has full staffing overall with 170 seasonal firefighters, the Idaho Department of Lands and Fire Management chief said, who is Josh Harvey. It continues saying, but the state is lacking experienced personnel, such as incident commanders and qualified engine bosses, who each lead a single fire engine and its personnel. Talked about this on the podcast on the Substack as well. I suggest everybody go check that out. Experienced firefighters really do have a major impact on how successful we are at keeping our folks safe, 100%. It's a massive safety issue for both the public and wildland firefighters. 
The chief continued saying, we've got the staff to fight the fires and fill all the seats that we have on the engines. It's just more of a concern to us if we have another 2021 fire season or a 2015 type season where fires were really explosive. They grew rapidly and there were lots of new starts. It creates situations where inexperienced firefighters may not recognize some hazards they are facing from that standpoint and it concerns us. Yeah, it should concern you. It is a problem. You hope that these new folks that are coming in can have great situational awareness and start learning quickly about the business and the industry and what is safe, what isn't safe, what to look for, and all of these things. And really, fire experience or being on the fire line is the only thing that's really going to get them there. I saw a video the other day of an individual who was cutting a tree that was on fire and about a 40-foot piece of burning bark came down and hit them. It's scary stuff, and you wonder if, you know, how new is that individual to cutting? Did no one see that? You know, you do things like sounding a tree with a falling axe or a felling axe to see if anything shakes out of the top of the tree, but it's a pretty intense video, and that's how these new folks end up getting hurt. Darnold could continue saying, as a result, Harvey told the Idaho State Board of Land Commissioners, which is made up of Governor Brad Little and other statewide officials, that the state's wildland firefighters would meet the minimum standard for fire readiness this year, even though they had turnover and lack of experience. It says this differs from past years, where the state felt good about its ability to provide what he called a robust, experienced response. Still, Chief Harvey emphasized that the state's seasonal firefighting crews are committed to providing safe, effective response across the state and focusing on the state's goal of keeping 94% of their fires to 10 acres or less. It's a bold goal. I know Washington has that same goal as well. And that's a conversation of, should we put these things out quick or let them burn? We've discussed that on podcasts before. I'm sure we'll cover it again. It says, this year, the reality is that we're missing out on a lot of those leadership-level folks. Yeah, I've been hammering that point for a while now. It's hard to describe, he says. We're going to meet our minimum standards. We can fill in spots where we have holes, but it's like the experienced bench strength in sports. We don't have a lot of bench strength this year. The Idaho Department of Lands provides fire protection on more than 6 million acres, including state land, private forests, endowments, and offset lands. Meanwhile, a coalition of federal agencies provides fire protection on Idaho's federal lands, including national forests and the Bureau of Land Management lands. Chief Harvey said turnover and leadership retention are complex problems. The economy and Idaho housing costs, state pay levels, and compensation with federal agencies play roles in all of this. For example, Harvey said fire crews historically hire college students who are looking to save money for the school year. Speaking specifically for Idaho, the cost of living to find a place to rent or to buy has skyrocketed north to south, even in the smaller communities. Yeah, I've been looking at property and houses out in Idaho. I've also been doing it out in Montana because I am looking to move back out west here in the fall. But it's incredible. The housing prices are insane. And I started looking in places where I'm like, okay, I know that place. I, I, I understand the communities and I think it would be a good fit. And then I start looking at what housing prices are. And it's like, oh man, I'm going to have to look in a smaller town 
than what these things are looking like right now. And just like Chief Harvey was saying, it's even in the smaller communities. And again, it's not just Idaho. It's Utah. It's Oregon, Washington. It's all of the Western United States. It's out of control. It continues saying that means student firefighters are spending almost all of their pay on housing and are not able to save money for the school year. No, they're living in their cars, actually, is what's happening is they say, oh, am I paying $1,800 a month for rent or should I just live in my car? And a lot of them are choosing to live in the car. When we're looking for temporary employees, some of them, some of the deciding factors for these folks are where am I going to live and how much is it going to cost? 100% that's what they're looking at. During the most recent legislative session, state legislators approved funding to provide housing to seasonal firefighters in the Kama District. Am I pronouncing that right? C-A-M-I-A-H. One of the Idaho Department of Land's strategies is to develop and provide housing for seasonal firefighters, particularly in hard-to-staff regions. Harvey said he hopes to see housing programs continue to expand, but he knows it's a years-long process to meet the needs. Competition is another factor. There is a relatively small pool of people who are interested in working as wildland firefighters, a job that can be difficult and dangerous. The pool of people who used to apply for wildland firefighting used to be massive. When I ran a crew, I would get 170 applications for seven vacancies. And now I have people telling me that no one's applying. They can't find anybody. And of course, it's for a number of reasons. It's this whole COVID debacle that took place, all the mandates. The pay issues are absurd. The housing issues are breaking the bank of basically anybody who's just working class individual. It's it's noticeable. Like I said, I've looked and it's it's crazy. Like it's absolutely insane if you want to move back out west. Lastly, it says, during the 2022 session, the Idaho legislature approved a 24% increase in state funding for the Idaho Department of Land's budget. That allowed the department to increase the number of seasonal firefighters from about 140 to 170 and increased the starting pay to $15 an hour. I read an interesting article today about inflation, and they're saying if the minimum wage is $15 adjusted for inflation over the last 10 years, That $15 adjusted for inflationary causes is actually just over $10 an hour because the cost of goods and housing and everything else has skyrocketed, not only in our country, but across the planet. It says the feds, however, have been able to use funding from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act to offer temporary pay increases and other incentives for firefighters. Yeah, but that's... uh, You can't use that as an excuse because that runs out in September and we're yet to see a fix of that. If this concerns you, call your representatives and tell them to support the Tim Hart Act. It says this week the United States Department of Agriculture is posting federal seasonal crew positions on USA Jobs websites with starting pay around $16.25. With one year of related experience, including a minimum of 90 days firefighting, That pay could increase to $18 an hour for seasonal jobs as a wildland firefighter on a hand crew through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. However, the federal firefighting workforce has also been depleted by an inability to keep up with inflation and burnout. Yes, 100%. I've been harping on that for two years, two years now. It's 
very obvious what the problem is, but Congress is moving very, very slow, and we'd rather send cluster bombs to fight a war in Europe than to pay wildland firefighters that are literally living out of their cars on the side of a road. Priorities seem to be elsewhere when it comes to our government. It closes saying what we already know in that the temporary pay increases for firefighters authorized under the infrastructure law will end on September 30th. Jaylith Hall Rivera, Forest Service Deputy Chief, says, We are doing everything we can to inform and educate members of Congress on the potential consequences of a pay cliff. A lot of folks with a lot of experience operationally are reaching out to me and saying that if they don't actually pass this, there's been this argument. Okay, I'll back up a little bit. There's been this argument within the wildland firefighting community for a little bit, and I just find it fascinating and entertaining at listening to people's opinions on all this, and I have my own, but a lot of folks are saying, hey, they're doing this on purpose. They want to destroy the wildland firefighting workforce. And then the other argument is, no, this is just people being inept and incompetent. And this is just a mass conflagration of incompetence in Congress and the United States government. But it should be clear to elected representatives now that this is a problem. It comes to a head in September, and you need to pass something. And if they don't pass something, it it's like it's neglect and willing destruction of your wildland firefighting workforce. A lot of folks are saying 50% will quit. Well, 45% has already quit over the last three years. And there are a lot of people who are close to retirement and they're going to stick it out. There's union forces that are trying to gather the strength of the wildland firefighting community to get these things passed. They have seemed to make some headway. But again, we're not seeing a lot of action as of yet from Congress to stop this fiscal pay cliff that comes at the end of September. So all in all in this article, Idaho is no exception, especially when it comes to state wildland firefighting workforces. I know a lot of people fighting fire in Minnesota. They tell me the same thing all the time. The state's priorities are totally and completely off. Wages are abysmal. One guy explained it to me over 4th of July weekend. This is a pretty dialed dude in Minnesota operationally. He's running fires. He's he's moving and shaking and getting stuff done up here. But he says the same thing that uh, I've been saying, and that's that these super-dialed operational guys and gals that have been around for a while left. And now the people with their forestry degrees who have never been on a fire in their lives are now running wildfire policy and operations. And from the ground perspective, he's seen the results of that. And he says it's abysmal. And he's trying to explain to people who are in charge of the fire how fire works because they only have classroom time and were trained to count trees. And (laughs) they've been put into positions of power because of their degrees and because of other reasons. And they're showing up on fires saying, hey, this is how we're going to run this thing. And it's just totally backwards and they got it all wrong and it's a mess. And that's not just Minnesota. It's all over the Western United States as well. I hear about it every single day from frustrated firefighters who are just sick of it. And it's it's the reason the experienced people are leaving. The new people don't know any better. And that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just they don't know any better. When someone shows up and they don't know how to operate and run a wildfire or what is good sound wildfire policy, the new folks 
are just like, oh, okay, that must be the way it is. But the folks who have been around for 10, 15, 20 years who have millions of dollars in training and experience already invested into them, they start seeing who these new policy leaders and fire leaders are who were brought into these positions, not because they're good at fighting fire. It's because they have a degree and they sound right and they look right and all of these things. And they're showing up to these fires and people are just like, what are you talking about? Like, that's horror. Like, you're going to kill people if that's what we do. So all in all, that's why the experienced people are leaving because they're getting so frustrated where they're just like, screw this, I'm out. I'm going home, basically, is what they're saying. Screw you guys, I'm going home. And then you're left with inexperienced people at the top in a 50% first-year workforce underneath. No wonder the insurance companies are pulling out of all these areas. They see these numbers. They have what you call quants and other people doing investigating on what's happening in the wildfire industry. And they're saying, we really just don't want to take the risk of insuring homes anymore. Look at what's going on in the wildfire industry. Again, I can't stress this enough. It can be fixed. So many people would come back with experience if this Tim Hart Act is passed. You get backdated retirement, better wages, better benefits, better housing, all sorts of things. So if you are concerned about this, contact your representative, tell them to support the Tim Hart Act, and they have until September 30th to pass this thing, and day by day it just ticks by. And I keep watching the news to see if there's any sort of major announcement. But fascinating news out of Idaho. Again, thank you to all the Substack subscribers. We are 100% community supported. If you want to support what I do, go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com and click on that subscribe button. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. On Wednesday's show, which was Substack only, we talked about all sorts of things. We had these conversations about this clear retardant product that California is looking at spraying everywhere. I had an individual who actually worked for the company that manufactures these things and also is a certified applicator of these products. Hopefully, I'll have him on the show next week. Again, that'll be on Substack with that interview. And he's going to bring a bunch of insight of what's in these products, how it's actually applied, and kind of a view of how this is all proposed and how it's going to go down. But also on that podcast, we discussed this documentary called Burn that covers these toxic chemicals that are inside of the turnout gear in structure firefighters. And I talked to a bunch of firefighters at this documentary screening, a couple of them who were wildland firefighters before they went structure. One gal had cancer cut out of her back. We discussed that on Wednesday's show on Substack. Again, hopefully have her on a guest on the Substack show as well. I'm trying to set that up basically as I'm speaking right now. And I started the conversation of what maybe these things are in Nomex as well. And someone who listened to that podcast sent me a paper that was put out by Brian Goodman which is entitled Unveiling the Toxicity Behind Nomex Fabric and How Merino Wool Has Been Revived to Save the Fire Service. And that was something that I was thinking about 
while I was discussing all of this was maybe we should go back to what was used before instead of all of these chemically laden materials that are proven to leach and then aggregate mostly in the crotch of men and women and then they developed cancers. I'm not going to read this whole paper, but I'm going to punch through at least the toxicity levels that were found in some of these products. And I also agree with the author that we should explore going back to merino wool. A lot of folks, especially in the hotshot world, know that a good undershirt underneath your Nomex is basically essential. A lot of people just wear their crew colors and it's these cotton polyester blend shirts and they get all crusty, so on and so forth. But if you use merino wool t-shirts, yes, they are a little bit more expensive, but the difference is amazing. They stay fresh, they don't smell, they last longer, and they dry quicker, which just tells me that it's a superior product. And the author says, maybe we should consider merino wool for our fatigues and our Nomex and our gear that we wear. It says, over the past few years, Fire Department PPE, which is Personal Protective Equipment, and station wear has undergone a litany of independent scientific tests. These tests have uncovered the toxicity of the fabric on the human body. This is from the work of Dr. Graham Peasley, Diane and Lieutenant Paul Cotter, Neil and Genna McMillan, and Chief Sean Mitchell, Kevin Ferreira, and Jim Bernecka. Their work shows us that firefighter turnouts are some of the most heavily fluorinated textiles known to man, meaning it contains PFAS. Now, if you don't know what PFAS is, it's a highly, highly toxic chemical used as a fire retardant that has ended up in most of our country's water supply, actually. It's coming out of the tap now. And when it comes to wildland firefighting clothing, basically, there's more PFAS and other chemicals in it than basically everything else. And now DuPont and these other companies will say, well, there's no PFAS in our turnout gear or our Nomex anymore. Well, basically they did what a lot of, you know, illegal operations have done to skirt around drug laws in our country, which is they changed just like one or two molecules in what is PFAS and have named it something else, but it is still not good for you. It says the outer shell of firefighting fatigues were more than 2% fluorine by weight. The moisture barrier was a whopping 30% fluorine by weight. So it's just a massive layer of very bad cancerous chemicals. It continues saying what hasn't been discussed as much is Nomex station wear, and it's just as toxic. I had my Nomex station wear tested. In June, Dr. Graham Peasley notified us that three samples I sent in from 2014 through 2021, did contain PFAS in the Nomex. There was also brominated fire retardant and from DuPont's literature, benzene. Coincidentally, it appears we won the chemical cocktail lottery. Brominated fire retardant and benzene mirror the exact effects of PFAS on the human body. Above is an expert from DuPont's own Nomex Fiber Technical Guide. Under less severe conditions, Nomex degrades slowly. Keep in mind, less severe conditions constitute sunlight. And they go on to explain in this article that the makers of Nomex say, hey, you shouldn't wear Nomex in the sun. And you shouldn't hang them out in the sun to dry because that starts to break down this material and then you start leaching chemicals. Well, guess what? Everybody wears their Nomex in the sun. You get soaked in the sun every single day. 
It says, in return, the off-gassing of these chemicals rewards your body with the dirty half-dozen. The star of the show is benzene. Benzene is a known human carcinogen for all routes of exposure, according to the EPA. Outside of benzene's carcinogenic effects, cancer, endocrine disorders, chromosomal mutations, and infertility. Man, all the stuff I've been saying for a while with, with all these chemicals. Benzene also delivers a side of death for high-level exposure. Now, when I was a child, there was a train accident in the town that I lived in. Multiple train containers that contained benzene ruptured. And they went into a river and a massive chemical cloud of benzene started to come over the city. All of the city sirens started going off. Every TV station and radio station were broadcasting, get out of town. And they evacuated 85,000 people in the town that I lived in when I was a child. And we jumped in the van and we split to go to my grandparents' cabin, which was a ways out of town and was not going to be affected by this cloud, or at least we were told that. And it was everybody, all the cousins, all the uncles, all the aunts were out there. And I remember my dad and my uncle jumped back in the car and drove back into town because they thought to themselves, what a perfect time for people to go loot in the city if no one's in there. So they drove around to all the family's properties and kept an eye on them while the entire town was evacuated because they were concerned people were going to break in and start looting. Back to the article, it says, Brominated flame retardants banned in the U.S. since 2004 have also somehow remained in firefighter station wear. Brominated fire retardant has a wide array of health effects on the human body. Exposure to these PBDEs has been associated with neurological problems, endocrine disruption, cancer, and infertility. Like PFAS, they also remain persistent in the environment. Brominated fire retardant is so persistent that newborns today will have brominated fire retardant in their bodies at birth. Again, these are these forever chemicals that are ending up in our tap water. A lot of major, major corporations just had to pay $10 plus billion because they were leaching these chemicals into the waterways and they ended up making it into our tap water. $10 billion. If they're paying $10 billion and still in business, they made a lot more than $10 billion from selling these chemicals. The article says, This little gem in the exact user instruction, safety, and training guide brought to you by Lion Nomex. This document was attached to every brand new pair of Nomex pants. In this document, it says that I cannot store my Nomex pants and shirts in direct sunlight because it will damage the very fabric I'm supposed to wear in direct sunlight. I almost forgot that sunlight damages takes place in three days. So you can only wear your Nomex at night. And of course, that's a sarcastic comment, but that is what the product says. Don't keep this stuff in direct sunlight. It says, luckily for the citizens across the United States, when they open up their tap, they'll get a nice cup of cool, refreshing water loaded with chemicals your water treatment plant doesn't or can't filter out. You need reverse osmosis machines to get rid of these forever chemicals. You can get them for your home. Really, if especially if you have children or are trying to have children, I would highly suggest getting some of those filters for your house. But these things are now in our tap water. 
It continues saying, in reality, these corporations need to be legally held accountable for one of the worst environmental disasters and toxic exposures in the history of humankind, especially when creating clothing and turnout gear for firefighters and wildland firefighters. It's a great article put together. I found it very, very interesting. Thank you to the individual who passed that along to me. So it sounds like studies have been done on Nomex, and it does turn out that they are laden with chemicals. And the company themselves say, hey, this stuff's going to break down and may off-gas onto your body if you keep this stuff in direct sunlight and don't swap them out. So basically what it comes down to is you should swap out your Nomex as much as you can because once they start breaking down and degrading, it's when these chemicals off-gas in your body then absorbs them. A lot of wildland firefighters know the first thing to go out in these Nomex is the crotch of the pants. And that's because it's the most friction. It's where the most heat is. All of the sweat congregates down there and it breaks down that material. And then your the crotch of your pants blows out. And ultimately, that's why a lot of these structure firefighters are seeing testicular and colon cancers because when these materials start to break down and off gas, it collects in your sweat. That sweat then drips down your body and it ends up down in your crotch and that's where it accumulates. So what are our solutions? And that's the same question that this documentary raised was, what are the solutions? Well, they don't currently have any. Europe has approved gear without PFAS or these chemicals in them. But as far as I know, they haven't started importing or manufacturing these same types of products in the United States which is sad and disgraceful, and they should start thinking about doing that. But that was the big conversation was, we know what the problem is, but there's no approved solution to it. And so they're working around that. Obviously, there's going to be massive lawsuits against companies like DuPont and other companies that make all of these things. These are these huge, large, multinational chemical corporations that provide all of this stuff to our first responders. But one would be wear a merino wool underwear, wear a merino wool undershirt, and just try to keep Nomex off direct contact of your skin if you are really, really concerned about it. That Those are the current solutions of it all. With all the billions of dollars that are going into AI, satellite, climate, and other things in the U.S. government when it comes to wildfire, I would say maybe we should allocate a couple million dollars to researching if we can develop a new Nomex pants and shirt, and maybe we should consider opening up a new industry of merino wool uniforms that not only would be more comfortable, but would also be much, much more safe for the individuals who are wearing them. Back in the day, they used to just wear blue jeans, and I just had a conversation with a couple firefighters the other day, would you rather wear blue jeans than Nomex? And basically, knowing what we just went over, and the stipulation that the blue jeans have cargo pockets on them, yes, they would rather wear blue jeans than this. I'm curious of people's opinions. Have have you guys even thought about this, or is this anything that's been discussed? I know an individual sent me a paper on Nomex that their station went over, and it was describing you know environmental hazards, and surprisingly, the clear retardant that we discussed on Substack on Wednesday showed up in this piece of paper as well. And they're saying, hey, this, you know, you don't want to get long duration of this stuff on your skin and, and exposure can be dangerous long term, so on and so forth. I'll cover that on Wednesday's show. 
But I just wanted to bring light to this because it this documentary burn that was being screened where I live, but it sounds like it's going to be going public here soon, widespread. I suggest everybody watch it. Really opened my eyes to how toxic a lot of the clothing first responders wear. And with a little bit of research and testimonial from these firefighters, it seems that it is causing a lot of problems, specifically in cancers in these individuals. So maybe after we get all the wages figured out, we can start working on the chemical-laden uniforms. Again, the good news is a lot of people in the industry understand that this is a problem. They recognize it, and they're trying to do something about it. But as of right now, there's not an approved solution when it comes to swapping out this gear for something else. The main thing is, is don't continue to wear Nomex that have been degraded. And there's that pride of wearing a dirty Nomex and the pride of not having a clean yellow on in the wildfire world. But from the looks of it, it's, it's better to swap them out more often than not. There's still going to be a lot to cover on next Wednesday's show on Substack. Thank you to all the subscribers that support everything that I do. I couldn't do it without you. We are 100% community supported, and that is all through that site. If you want to help and continue this podcast and the social media, the fire updates, the donations, all of the articles. Again, I had an article in 24 hours that had 45,000, over 45,000 reads That's five times the amount of free subscribers that I have. It's an unbelievable amount above what what the paid subscribers are. And and I thank that small group of people that continue to support me. Again, none of this would be here without you. If you want to partake in that, just go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com and click on that subscribe button. On that note, reach out to someone you haven't talked to in a while, see how they're doing. Hydrate, stretch. Eat those quality calories, get out, get some exercise, get the rest you need because that will help you recover and last longer. But when you get up, you got to get it done. for you.